Eldritch Pump Files, Texas Two-Step Plan Documents, Splitting Current and Future Asbestos Claims, DBMP Asbestos Claimant Representatives Object to Amended Trust Funding Agreement, Malincrot Files Amended Plan Memorializing Global Opioid Settlement, Resolutions with Note Holders. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Julian Boulown. Also this week, Judge Phillips denies ad hoc committee's motion to appoint examiner and Intel set. For this week's deep dive, Reorg's Edward Cerullo, Sean Daly, and Kyla Wusu discuss developments in the ongoing Latin American Airline Chapter 11 cases, including Avianca, LATAM Airlines, and Grupo Aeromexico. It's Friday, October 1st. Last Friday, September 24th, the debtors in the Aldrich Pump Texas two-step Chapter 11 cases filed a plan support agreement and placeholder plan of reorganization, providing the latest blueprint for future Texas two-step mass tort Chapter 11 cases, including a potential filing by Johnson & Johnson to rid itself of talc liabilities. Under the PSA, the debtors, the train operating entities, and the future asbestos claimants representative, or FCR, agreed to cash out the operating entity's ongoing asbestos liability for $545 million and to allocate the bulk of the settlement payment to future claimants represented by the FCR. If the plan is confirmed, the non-debtor operating entities would receive releases and injunctions protecting them from all current and future asbestos claims, which would be channeled to the trust established by the plan. The debtors also filed a motion to estimate their current asbestos liability to claimants that manifested disease prior to the petition date at no more than $125 million, the amount of current asbestos claims agreed to by the debtors and the FCR and the PSA. The debtors state that they believe that the estimation proceeding, which would occur prior to confirmation, would take approximately one year. The debtors suggest in the estimation motion that the Asbestos Claimants Committee, or ACC, will contest both the necessity of an estimation proceeding and the proposed $125 million amount for current asbestos claims. At a status conference on Thursday, Judge Whitley told the parties that he would likely schedule a hearing on the estimation motion in November or December. On Wednesday, September 29th, the Official Asbestos Claimants Committee in the DBMP Texas Two-Step case, also in Charlotte, objected to approval of an amended asbestos trust funding agreement between the debtor and certain LLC, the operating entity that emerged from the Texas divisional merger that also created the debtor. According to the ACC, the amended funding agreement is yet another stratagem to extinguish fraudulent transfer claims that would unwind the divisional merger and defeat the pending request to substantively consolidate the debtor's estate with certain TEED. The ACC points to findings in the proposed order approving the amended funding agreement as evidence of the debtor's ulterior motives, including findings that the amended agreement is fair and equitable, in the best interests of creditors, valid and enforceable. These proposed findings demonstrate, the ACC says, that the amended funding agreement and the proposed order are designed to cleanse and shield the corporate restructuring from creditor challenge and judicial scrutiny. The ACC argues that approval of the amended funding agreement is not in the best interests of creditors because it allows the debtor in certain TEED LLC to continue to push a time-consuming and costly estimation proceeding in the hopes that the asbestos claimant's representatives will settle for asbestos claim funding that will be far less than warranted in light of certain TEED's extensive asbestos liabilities. Additionally, the ACC maintains that the amendments to the funding agreement trumpeted by the debtor are window dressing that has more gloss than substance. Among other things, the ACC argues the new prohibition against payment of dividends by CertainTeed LLC would not halt CertainTeed's current practice of upstreaming cash to affiliates, including ultimate parent St. Gaubin in the form of loans. The ACC also argues that CertainTeed LLC would still be free to incur unlimited debt that would be senior in priority to its obligations to fund the debtor, and CertainTeed LLC is expressly permitted to engage in consolidations and mergers and to transfer all or substantially all of its assets. On Wednesday, September 29th, the Mallinckrodt debtors filed a long-awaited amended plan of reorganization incorporating previously announced settlements with the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, the Official Committee of Opioid Creditors, Second Lien Note Holders, and the holders of their 4.75% and 8% legacy notes. Under the amended plan, a GUC trust would be funded with $135 million in cash, contingent assets, and certain causes of action. Consistent with the prior plan, guaranteed unsecured note claims stand to receive 100% of reorganized equity subject to dilution, with first lien claims receiving cash or new cram-down debt, including provisions accounting for an anticipated make-hold dispute with the first lien note holders. Second lien note holders would receive new second lien notes, with no allowance for the second lien make-hold. The amended plan also provides for an additional $125 million payment to opioid claimants on the 8th anniversary of the effective date, subject to the debtor's prepayment option during the first 18 months after the effective date. The amended plan faces additional headwinds, however, due to a ruling by Judge John Dorsey on Wednesday, 
which denied the Mallinckrodt debtor's motion for partial summary judgment on the administrative Akhtar claims asserted by Humana and Attestor on the basis that the claims were post-petition claims rather than pre-petition claims stemming from earlier alleged misconduct. As a result, if the debtors do not prevail at a trial on the merits of the administrative claims, the Akhtar claimants may be able to challenge the pricing of Akhtar on antitrust and other grounds after the debtors emerge from Chapter 11, which the debtors have said could endanger the plan. At a hearing on Wednesday, Judge Keith Phillips denied a motion to appoint an examiner filed by the Ad Hoc Committee of Intelsat SA Equity Holders, sustaining objections lodged by the debtors, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, and other plan proponents. Looking ahead to the upcoming confirmation hearing scheduled for November 8th, the court determined that it was unrealistic to think that anything meaningful could be done by the examiner before confirmation. The debtors argued at the hearing that appointing an examiner at the current juncture, 473 days into the case and 40 days from confirmation, was not appropriate. The debtors added that any delay in the confirmation timeline was inappropriate due to the, quote, staggering carrying costs of the case. The debtors also added that all issues raised in the examiner motion can and will be determined at confirmation. Judge Phillips denied the motion to appoint an examiner without prejudice, should confirmation not go forward as the debtors expect. Top red stories this week included unrestricted subsidiary transfers threatened to split lenders into haves and have-nots, potentially deprived of secured status in Chapter 11, often lead to acrimonious litigation. Moby accuses DeMeo, Morgan Stanley, of trying to scuttle restructuring, seize control of company through economic piracy, seeks injunction to bar defendants from purchasing more notes. PJM generators to face further headwinds as FERC orders market seller offer cap change. PJM requests auction delay to January from December. GoBond CVI bill contemplated in Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment filed in Puerto Rico legislature. Oversight board voices support for pension municipal finance initiatives. Now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Good morning and welcome to the week ahead. Monday, October 4th, Ultra Petroleum returns with oral arguments in the Make Whole PPI appeal before the Fifth Circuit and in Forever 21, a dismissal conversions motion hearing. Tuesday, October 5th, Stoneway Capital, second exclusivity extension hearing. Wednesday, October 6th, omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico. And Thursday, October 7th, a repledge procedures hearing in Corp Group Banking. And that's it from me. Back to New York. And next up, Reorg's Edward Cerullo, Sean Daly, and Kyla Wusu discuss progress in the ongoing Latin American Airline Chapter 11 cases, including Avianca's vote solicitation on a plan of reorganization and expected plan filings by LATAM Airlines and Grupo Aeromexico. Hi, I'm Sean Daly, distressed at legal analyst for America's Core Credit by Reorg. And joining me on the podcast today are Kyla Wusu, Director of Emerging Markets Credit Research, and Ed Cerullo, LATAM Corporate Credit Analyst. We'll be discussing the current state of play in the major Latin American Airlines Chapter 11 cases. Avianca is leading the way with a proposed plan of reorganization already out for solicitation, while Latin Airlines and Aeromexico just need the proverbial five more minutes, please, to get plans on file. Kyle and Ed, welcome. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. Thanks, Sean. Okay, so let's start with Avianca. As we noted a minute ago, uh, the debtors have a plan on file. The disclosure statement has been approved. The UCC supports the plan. Confirmation hearing scheduled for October 26th. No major roadblocks to confirmation. Uh, a couple minor disclosure statement objections that were overruled. So, Ed, this this one's looking looking pretty baked. Um, maybe you could walk us through the the plan details. Sure. Thanks, Sean. Um, first and foremost, the, the plan contemplates a, a $1.6 billion dip to exit facility that would see the the dip A tranche repaid in full, um, essentially by a A1 uh, facility of $1.05 billion and an A2 uh, facility of $550 million that would effectively convert into seven-year uh, paper uh, on after the emergence date and carry a 9% coupon. Uh, the restructuring and plan is also predicated on the equity conversion option uh, for the tranche B dip claims um, and an additional concurrent equity contribution by certain tranche B lenders. Specifically, um, certain tranche B lenders, uh, including United, have agreed to provide an additional $200 million of value uh, in exchange for an incremental allocation or 21% of uh, reorg equity uh, issued at a pre-money valuation of $800 million. Uh, specifically, United uh, uh, 
kind of like to participate uh, in the in the contribution um, through providing aircraft. The other parties uh, party to this um, additional uh, equity contribution are uh, Kingsland, uh, GRI Capital, Elliott, Southlake One, Citadel, and Moneda. And I think it's worth sneaking in. Sorry, Ed, before you go on, uh, just a, a quick note that the debtors are relying on the marketing process they ran starting in the spring uh, to see if anyone was willing to provide new capital on terms more favorable than this tranche B equity conversion. Um, it sort of came up at multiple hearings over the spring and summer. This is this is the deal that they arrived at. So they're they're kind of relying now on well, you can you can impute valuation from this. Um, here's, you know, here's where the market cleared to support valuation as, as opposed to filing a separate, you know, summary valuation analysis or anything in their disclosure statement. Um, so sorry, Ed, maybe onward to unsecured claims. Sure. Yes. In terms of, uh, distributions to, to unsecured, uh, claim holders, uh, the plan provides that, um, uh, unsecured Avianca claim holders have an option to uh, receive either a pro rata share of consideration um, in cash or 1.75% of uh, equity um, and warrants for 5% of reorg equity. Uh, the aggregate warrant consideration is valued at 16 million. Uh, an additional 0.75% of reorg equity would be available for distribution to unsecured creditors um, if the class as a whole elects to accept the plan. So in aggregate, uh, in, what does this look like in terms of recoveries for unsecureds? We have um, uh, 20 million or 2.5% of the 800 million pre-money uh, valuation plus 16 million in warrants or 36 million in total uh, in cash or shares plus warrants. In terms of recoveries, um, assuming that the 9% notes are effectively unsecured per the debt marshaling provision, um, and 129 million of those non-roll-up 9% notes remained outstanding, plus an additional 65.6 million in holdout 2020 notes from the previous exchange, and 53.2 million in unsecured credit lines. That leaves us just under 250 million uh, in unsecured um, claims, or roughly 14.5% implied recovery. Um, we also note that uh, per the, um, the disclosure statement, um, they're showing. Uh, unsecured claims with a recovery of 1% to 1.4%. Uh, moving back to the Toronto B lenders. Um, Sorry, real, real quick, Ed, and where uh, where are those notes that you just ran through? Where are they trading right now? Yeah, so the yeah, so the the, the, the 9% notes are, are trading sort of in context of 15, 16 uh, cents on the dollar, which um, would sort of uh, dovetail with the 14.5% implied recovery that we're, um, we're estimating. Um, thanks for Great. thanks for mentioning thanks. that, Sean. Yep. Um, and and just moving back to the the Toronto Bay lenders who would effectively receive uh, receive the remainder of the equity distribution distribution or seventy six point five percent, assuming that the unsecureds take that deal and get the full two and a half percent. Previously, the debtors had estimated that the, the Toronto Bay claims uh, were roughly nine hundred thirty five million. Um, the equity conversion motion references a $900 million and $940 million figure. Um, note that this tranche uh, began with a principal amount of $722 million and grew um, on account of uh, capitalized interest and fees. Uh, it's a bankruptcy. You um, got to love that pick. Yeah. And, and, and effectively, the exit notes together with uh, any amended restated secured debt um, and the new common equity plus warrants const or will constitute the, the entirety of the, the debtor's pro forma capital structure. Um, naturally, the equity distribution um, is subject to dilution uh, by shares issued in connection with the warrants and any shares issued pursuant to a um, management incentive plan uh, at the directive of the reorganized Avianca board. Turning to um, plan valuation, uh, it's effectively uh, total enterprise value of $4 billion, assuming the roughly $3 billion pro forma net debt per the debtor's uh, business plan, and the $1 billion in equity based on the $200 million uh, of new equity struck at an $800 million pre-money valuation. Um, we, we see this is in line with fair value assessment um, based on a 2020 million, uh, 2022 expected EBITDA of $667 million, 
which we capitalized at six times, um, uh, we note that this is um, sort of on a forward, value, forward valuation basis. This is uh, lower than uh, the likes of Azul, which traded about uh, trades at about 8.8 times, and we're using this lower multiple um, because we believe that the, the execution uh, there's a higher degree of, of execution risk um, with respect to the debtor's business plan. Uh, speaking of which, um, the uh, Avianca is uh, intends to embark on a embark on a new strategic direction um, that marks a, sh- uh, a shift in strategy, seeing the company pivot from a low cost or to a low cost uh, carrier model based on a core business of narrow body aircraft operating on a hybrid hub and point to point network. Um, this also entails a transformed cost structure with uh, total uh, system uh, airline cost per available seat kilometers or casks, excluding fuel projecting to fall by more than 41% uh, by 2023. Um, it would also uh, entail a dramatic uh, fleet cost reduction with average fleet cost ownership um, expecting to be reduced by more than 35% through the, the replacement of existing aircraft and repricing of uh, lease agreements on current market terms. Um, as well as through the the densification or upgaging process, uh, further reducing unit costs. Uh, the company also expects to to uh, see a significant financial deleveraging, with net debt to EBITDA projecting to decrease below three times by 2024, when the company expects to generate 1.15 billion in EBITDA. Uh, the company is projecting total debt to range from four to 4.4 billion between 2021 and 2026, and increase to. 5.3 billion by 2028, mostly on account of additional aircraft financing related to uh, uh, new operating leases and deliveries via the Airbus order from 2025 onwards. Net debt is expected to decrease uh, from just over 3 billion in 2021 to 2.3 billion in 2028, leading to a reduction in net leverage from 5.1 times to 1.4 times. Thanks, Ed. I think this cost structure point is maybe an interesting segue into LATAM. They filed a few weeks ago with cleansing materials uh, deck, including a slide showing this um, cost per available C kilometer or cask X fuel for a, a bunch of different airlines. You've got goal at 3.7 cents. Um, then LATAM, depending on whether you include the cargo business at 4.2 to 4.5 cents, Azul at 4.6, and then up in the, the stratosphere, terrible pun intended, you've got Avianca at 6.2 cents. So is the Avianca cost structure here, and, and you know maybe with a grain of salt because it's being shown in a, in a comps table by one of their competitors, is that 6.2 cents uh, in 2019 terms consistent with what Avianca has disclosed? It, it 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 is thanks, Sean. And indeed, it is. Um, they, they showed a, a cask X fuel of roughly six point one seven cents in twenty nineteen, um, and are showing a passenger uh, cask X fuel of three point four eight uh, cents by twenty twenty three, which would be the the lowest sort of of that um, historical comparison. So, I mean, do you th- that would put them cheaper than than LATAM uh, if they sort of fully follow through with their anticipated cost-cutting strategy? It, it would. Um, ultimately, depends on the magnitude of the cost transformation of LATAM and, again, sort of sort of speaks to this the degree of business execution risk that, that both these, these airlines face. Yeah, so maybe just ending on that point, how much of the, the cost-cutting has already been realized versus, you know, are we talking about a, a plan that's kind of multi-year still you know, those, those future EBITDA numbers are, are baking in some anticipated cost saving. Yeah, it, re- it remains on, ongoing. They're expecting to generate about 500 million per annum um, of in, in cost reduction, plus structural changes to fleet and network uh, to be realized through 2023. Great. Well, thank you very much, Ed. We'll come back to you in a minute to discuss Aeromexico. But I think maybe a good in-between, because we've just been talking about them, uh, to turn over to LATAM Airlines, uh, where there's there's no plan on file, but there is an illustrative plan term sheet that the, the company put out on September 10th with some cleansing materials. And they're operating under a, a short extension of their exclusive period to file a plan. 
um, until October 15th. Kyle, could you maybe kick us off by running through who the key players are as we approach this pivotal point in the plan process? Yeah, sure. So you've got um, the the ad hoc uh, group of bondholders who filed um, a statement uh, disclosing um, uh, 1.6 billion of total claims, sort of across the, the uh, capital structure on July 22nd. I would note that uh, within that, you have 731.2 million um, of uh, international 2024 and 2026 bonds um, that are held by the group, and there's one and a half billion of total 2024 and 2026 unsecured bonds. You've also got the ad hoc group of parent unsecured creditors who filed a statement um, as of July 12th, uh, with showing 5.2 billion of total claims against um, the, the uh, total claims um, across the capital structure. Uh, interestingly, in that filing, uh, there were 4 billion of claims against LATAM and certain related claims against uh, LATAM subsidiaries. Uh, you've also got the ad hoc committee of shareholders who filed um, showing three and a half million of shares as of August 17th. I would note that Columbus Hill Capital Management um, disclosed 12 million shares and other unspecified claims, and Sean will touch on their role in the uh, in the proceedings, I'm sure. Um, and then the the existing uh, pre-petition shareholders here um, are, are are playing a pretty significant role. You've got Delta. Cutter Airways and the uh, Cueto family. Um, then moving to the the dip providers, the the dip tranche A uh, lead um, is uh, Oak Tree. You've got additional um, tranche A providers in Knighthead, uh, Cutter Airways, and Cueto. Uh, in the tranche C, there are the the Jeffries Creditor Syndicate as well as certain other minority shareholders. And uh, Oak Tree and Apollo have proposed a 700 million tranche B dip, um, and the debtor filed that motion very recently on September 29th. Um, I would also note that uh, Apollo, Knighthead, Sertaris, uh, and other LATAM Airlines bondholders and unsecured claim holders signed uh, NDAs to access the debtor's plan and discuss Chapter 11 terms. That was around... Uh, Roughly mid-August, um, Knighthead, Apollo, and Sertaris, as many people know, that trio's restructuring proposal was selected by Hertz in those proceedings as the uh, the winning proposal. Um, Knighthead and Sertaris have invested in Latam Pier Azul through conver convertible notes. Apollo is uh, the the lead investor in the uh, the Aeromexico dip, which I, I would imagine that uh, Ed will touch on. Um, and Knighthead also participated in uh, LATAM Airlines dip, dip as, I, as I noted above. So, um, you know, the, these investors are clearly no strangers um, to the travel and, uh, and leisure sector. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, that, you know, COVID demand recovery trade. If, if you like it once, you might like it three times or, or four times. Exactly. Um, so could you could you maybe take us then through some key details from this uh, plan term sheet? Yeah, sure. So starting with the secured portion of the cap stack, you've got 300 million of admin claims, 1.4 billion of dip tranche A, one and a half and, and one and a half billion of dip tranche C. And those are those are set to be repaid in cash. Um, then you've got uh, a 603 million revolving credit facility and a 273 million spare engine facility, which um, are expected to be uh, either refied or um, renegotiated with a maturity extension. There's also 292 million of other secured claims and then 10 million of priority unsecured claims with treatment uh, TBD, um, either unimpaired or impaired based on plan value and uh, allocation of value. Then you've got one one and a half billion of unsecured notes, um, and the those those creditors are slated to receive um, plan recovery reorganized shares 
subject to dilution uh, from the management incentive plan and or cash in accordance with the rights offering process. Um, and uh, you also have 5.9 billion of other unsecured claims um, and the treatment is similar. You've got plan recovery reorganized shares subject to dilution of the MIP um, and or cash in accordance with the rights offering process. Uh, finally, you have uh, the existing equity um, and they are slated to receive the right to invest in new value um, in the rights offering. Great, thanks. Thanks for that rundown. Let's let's maybe unpack the rights offering a bit uh, because this is this is where things get interesting. Sort of what are unsecured notes versus prepetition equity getting? Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the 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 use of pre, it's a five billion rights offering uh, for starters, and then um, the use of proceeds. You've got one point eight billion of cash going to the balance sheet. 1.4 billion going to repay the the tranche a dip and then one and a half billion um going to repay the the tranche c uh with 300 million repaying admin claims that that are incurred as part of the debtor chapter 11 in cash and i agree it's it, this is definitely where things get interesting in terms of some of the uh potential chilean law issues which i'll uh, i'll leave to you to to discuss yeah. Um, full disclaimer, you know, I can find Chile on a, on a map, but that's about it. So, these are, <laughs> you know, this is, this is paraphrasing from uh, restatements of the law in, in various pleadings over the course of the case. But yeah, it's sort of, there are two Chilean law issues implicated. One, to raise equity capital, a public company must amend its bylaws via shareholder vote. And then two, all shareholders have the right to participate pro rata in any equity raise um, through these you know, preemptive rights. And you can also you can you can waive or transfer the the preemptive rights. So how does this you know how does this get addressed in the term sheet? Uh, the debtors note you know hey first we'll have a shareholders meeting, and then when you're thinking about prepetition equity here, there's a, there's a, a subset of facilitating shareholders. They're called. Uh, which, you know, that could be uh, Delta, Cotter, Cueto family, you know, just kind of, just kind of reading between the lines here um, that will agree to, to do two things. One, to vote in favor of any needed shareholder resolution. So, you know, debtors more or less have that locked in. And then they will, and their, their bullets still blank in the term sheet, um, for these parties to agree to, you know, retain, assign, or waive all through preemptive rights. So retain, you know, you're, you're exercising those preemptive rights. Assign, they'd assign, you know, X percent to the backstop parties. So that's how you get the backstop parties. They're they're a little bit of non-prorata juice, and then the waiver, the waived rights would go. Um, the defined term is unsecured creditors' investment rights and. Um, maybe you could take us then through Kyle, how this, you know, with, with this kind of funky structure, what are the, the multiple rounds of the, the rights offering? Sure. So round one of the rights offering is going to be the pre the, the preemptive rights offering, which will be offered for subscription to two shareholders in accordance with Chilean law. Uh, LATAM parent shareholders who, as of the record date, do not waive or assign their preemptive rights are going to have the right to purchase for cash at plan value their pro rata share of any reorganized shares that are issued as part of the plan. And cash proceeds that are received um, from the remaining so non-backstop or, or facilitating shareholder groups um, will be paid in in cash to other to, to unsecured creditors. I'm sorry. Um, shares that are not exercised in the the preemptive rights offering round are going to be retained by Latam Airlines parent company, and then placed in an unsecured rights offering, which would take place after the preemptive rights offering. Under the unsecured rights offering, 
these shares that are not exercised, um, which are called the backstop reorganized shares, would be offered to all unsecured creditors on a pro rata basis based on plan recoveries. And then finally, any backstopped um, reorganized shares that are remaining after the unsecured rights offering would be subscribed or acquired for cash by the backstop parties and any other parties that are interested in acquiring shares as may be agreed by the backstop parties. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that rundown. So it's sort of equity gets the first crack, then unsecureds, and then like anything else, if there's anything left over, that's that's where the backstop comes in. Um, so I guess just to, to noodle on the, the preemptive rights, they're really kind of two legal issues before we move on. Um, one in various parties' responses to the debtor's latest rec- request for exclusivity, they they start tiptoeing around some some plan flavored arguments. Uh, the UCC, the the parent ad hoc claims group, um, has kind of raised a flag and said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" You know, until we mighty unsecured claims are paid in full, the absolute priority rule says, you know, no dice on value flowing lower than us. Um, Columbus Hill, as, as you noted earlier, it's got 12 million shares or so. They, they filed a nice response, which about as politely as, as you could said, hey, have you, have you dummies forgotten the new value exception to the absolute priority rule? Um, and the debtors, for their part, sort of stepped back. And, but also, you know, they said something along the lines of, oh, don't forget, uh, absolute priority rule only kicks in if, if we're in cram down. So you know, kind of a, a suggestion that if we can get enough unsecured creditors on board, like whatever, this is this isn't um, a deal. But I think that I think the new value exception is is really the the better point there. Um, and then one one other legal issue before we go on, which kind of goes back to unsecured recoveries, the company showed when it filed its its schedules and statements late last year, um, and, I, and I think Kyle, you you had the eye on this. Originally, they they showed a lot of value in some intercompany receivables at entities that had issued some uh, U.S. dollar bonds, and so it kind of looked just just based on you know those those basic facts like oh okay U.S. dollar bonds maybe have a few extra sources of recovery as opposed um, to bonds that were only issued up at the parent and didn't didn't sort of have these these other entities. Uh, it was caused enough heartburn that a, a local law, a Chilean bond trustee, filed a motion for partial substantive consolidation earlier this year, essentially making the argument, hey, these these other boxes were only created for the for the US dollar bonds as you know for tax and structuring quirks. We we all sort of thought we had the same credit support. Um, so there's, you know, it would be hugely unfair. If uh, if these U.S. dollar bonds had some other source of recovery, um, and so we we've gotten ourselves into uh, Schrodinger's intercompany balance here. It exists, uh, maybe, or it's, maybe it doesn't. Uh, the debtors have sort of disclaimed any reliance on on representations about intercompany balances. You know, oh, it's, they may change. Uh, plan term sheet appears to treat all unsecured claims the same. You can you can allocate different claim amounts at different boxes, maybe. Um, but then the, this request for partial substantive consolidation, the court held a hearing in July and judge Garrity, you know, this, this, uh, local bond indenture trustee raised a, a whole parade of, of horribles argument and judge Garrity said, you know, made some comments along the lines of, well, all right, you guys made an assumption turned out to be wrong. I'm, I'm not seeing an issue here. Uh, which I wouldn't read necessarily as, as him saying, yes, you know, I, I bless the fact that there are these extra sources of recovery and more just like, hey, you know, I don't know. They, they kicked the can. Uh, the debtor said, until we file a plan that actually raises this argument, this isn't even an issue that's ripe for discussion. So I, I wouldn't, you know, the judge didn't seem to have any issues if the debtors wanted to show up in, in court and um Allocate value, you know, in whatever way they're they're going to say as part of a global resolution. So, just a, a little, a couple legal tales to to keep an eye on as as things go forward. But maybe more importantly, Kyle, you could take us now um, to just kind of thinking about the business, thinking about valuation. 
Yeah, sure. So as, as, as Sean touched upon, there are various um, potential disputes in this case. And as I mentioned, there are a few separate um, different constituencies and groups, and that all sort of points to um, one direction or one idea, which is that there are um, a few people out there that think there's um, a lot of value in this in this company, um, or and uh, the question um, or the debate, I should say, more accurately, is um, going to likely come down to how that value gets allocated, and so. Um, the, the question is, how are we getting, how is the company getting there in terms of justifying the, the, the value that, um, people are seeing and, 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 and what does this recovery look like, or what does the company, uh, forecast, uh, that the recovery looks like? Um, and so just running through, uh, firstly, some, some of the top line assumptions, um, the, the, the debtor put out a, a, a cleansing statement or, or, or released rather cleansing documents, um, sort of pointing to a domestic market recovery driven by Brazil and Chile, uh, followed by Peru, Colombia, and uh, Ecuador. Um, the, the, the assumptions um, sort of bake in a 15% uh, permanent structural gap with regard to business travel, but that's expected to be offset somewhat by a 12% improvement in U.S. long-haul routes uh, driven by the, the joint venture that uh, Latam Airlines has with Delta. Um, the forecast call for long-haul demand in the long-haul market uh, to recover um, to 105% of 2019 levels um, by 2024. And, you know, interestingly, I, I think with regard to the top line and, and, and just in general, um, 2022 and, and 2023 are key years um, as the, the company forecasts that it's going to ramp up its available seat kilometers or, or ASKs uh, by 55% year on year from 71 billion uh, ASK is to 110 billion. Then, uh, followed by that spike, another uh, 23% year-on-year increase to 135 billion by 2023. Um, so that's sort of the top line with regard to the passenger segment. Then, if you move to the cargo segment, I mean, interestingly, the 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 the, the debtor is 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 anticipating that this business can grow um, to 1.7 billion of revenue by 2024, uh, compared with 1.1 billion in 2019, um, with cargo uh, moving from 10% of total revenue pre-pandemic to about 14% by 2026. Um, and the, 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 so that, that, that's the, the top line. And then um, I think it's similar to Avianca and just, a, I, I would imagine a theme that you're, you're probably going to see with uh, Latin American airline restructurings, but just in general with, with airlines across the board as they look to cut costs um, during the, the, the pandemic. Uh, LATAM is, is forecasting EBITDA margin expansion um, with EBITDA margin reaching um, about 21.1%, uh, which is roughly 2019 levels uh, by 2024, but then continuing um, to expand in, in, in 2025 and, uh, and, and 2026, um, where the EBITDA uh, uh, margin um, is, is as high as 25%. Um, and you've got uh, a 36% roughly incremental margin in 2023, followed by a 36% incremental in 2024, 38% in 2025, and 40% uh, incremental margin in 2026. So you can you can really see here that the the, the debtor um, or the debtors are obviously estimating um, a, a, a an increase in, in profitability. Um, now, I would note that in the in the model, um, they they've disclosed that they're holding jet fuel flat at at seventy three dollars a barrel. So we'll have to see um, sort of how any 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 potential increases in in, in crude oil. Um, or, or rather, in jet in, in jet fuel prices can can imp, can impact those estimates. Um, a, a, a very important element of the the debtor's plan um, 
is this conversion um, from uh, fixed to variable costs. Uh, and and a, a key part of that is negotiating or renegotiating, I should say, the contracts under its uh, various aircraft uh, from um, from uh, fixed fixed uh, fixed payments to power by hour, which basically means that you pay based on how much you fly. So about sixty percent of the debtor's narrow body fleet. Uh, is projected to be on a power by on power by hour agreements until 2022, um, and then 50% of the wide body fleet is expected uh, to be on uh, power by hour agreements until uh, 2023. Um, and so again, that that just goes to show or goes to highlight uh, how important those two years are, 2022 and 2023, in terms of um, being key years where the debtors' uh, activity um, is expected to ramp up, um, and uh, the 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 costs will sort of transition back to more fixed in nature. Uh, so, if you don't get that ramp up, uh, that could be problematic. Um, another reason it could be problematic is that you've got uh, in 2022 a 900 million cash outflow leading to a projected 142 million cash balance at year end. Now the debtors um, are, are obviously anticipating that that, that, that cash balance uh, will, will increase, um, but nevertheless uh, will increase, sorry, to, to about 1.4 billion by 2026. But nevertheless, um, it, it just highlights the, the risk I think uh, inherent in in the plan that you don't have uh, a ramp up a ramp up of activity in 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 2022 and 2023, um, and so moving to 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 valuation really quickly, uh, one one very key point here is that the debtor has put out low and uh, high estimate claims, and I think the key the key point with regard to those claims is that the delta you've got. 6.9 billion of low estimate unsecured claims and 8.7 billion of uh, of high estimate unsecured claims. Um, so depending on how the claims uh, process and the claims estimates shake out, you could see some dilution there. Um, the debtor is estimating a pro forma capital structure that uh, has a 3.4 billion of net debt, so 6.2 billion of total debt, including operating leases, and 2.8 billion of cash. Um, and you know, I, I think Ed touched upon Azul trading at, at at around you know just over about eight and a half times its fiscal 19 EBITDA. Um, so you know, if you if you apply a a, a seven to nine times range. To LATAM's EBIT 2024 EBITDA estimates of uh, 2.2 billion, um, you know, plus or minus 10%, that can get you to a, a low case valuation of about 14 billion. Um, if you discount that multiple range a bit uh, by like 25% and use five and a quarter to six and a quarter, or sorry, five and a quarter to six and three quarters, that would get you at a low case valuation. Um, of about 10 billion. Um, so you know, you can start to see why um, a why the bonds are, are are trading where they are. They're 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 now near par or about around 90. Um, but B, I think also more importantly, um, why the the rights offering and I think the ability to participate in the rights offering. Um, you know, those are pro- probably going to be key points in this case. Because I think depending on um, what your view is on airlines and the multiple and what have you, um, I, I, I suspect that there are um, a lot of people out there that do, that do believe that there's there's equity value in this structure. Um, so that's that's enough rambling for me um, on the the assumptions and 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 value and and valuation metrics with regard to LATAM. Yeah, thank you. That all all very helpful um, for thinking about you know just kind of what what ranges of, of value are, are at play here and um, you know how how that will inform the positions people take in the case going forward. So so thank you. Uh, maybe 
time to finish off. Uh, Ed, we'll, we'll kick it back over to you with Aeromexico. Um, maybe you could just, you could start us out with the, the cap structure. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess before going into sort of current bankruptcy status, uh, quick overview of their of their cap stack. Uh, Aeromexico has uh, just under 1.1 billion uh, in dip currently, um, consisting of a, a 200 million dollar tranche A portion and a, what was a 800 million dollar uh, Apollo tranche B. Um, notably, Delta has uh, cited its intention to exercise a 185 million dollar. Um, option to purchase uh, uh, commitments from Apollo on that tranche B, uh, which also notably has an equity conversion option to it. Um, they have uh, finance leases of uh, slightly in excess of $1 billion, uh, working capital and uh, RCF uh, totaling $350 million USD, senior unsecured dollar bonds, uh, of which $400 million are outstanding. Uh, local uh, peso notes or seguros, of which 258 million are uh, secured um, and guaranteed, and 58 million are unsecured and non-guaranteed. And last but not least, uh, approximately 1.2 billion USD of operating leases. Great, thanks. So the current bankruptcy status—it's—it's it's interesting. Aeromexico could have been the first of these three to get a plan on file based on when it originally had uh, some exit financing discussions earlier in the year, but the main case parties, including um, notably Apollo is, is that dip lender with an equity conversion option and the debtors have been in uh, valuation material and, and plan process mediation since the end of July, early August. Um, so they, they kind of lost, lost that, that head start. Uh, but they only their uh, plan, exclusivity period expires on October 8th. So, I mean, similar to LATAM, they've represented, we'll have a plan on file soon. We, we may record this and then five minutes later, there's, there's something on file. Um, but what we do have, just in, in terms of disclosure about positions, uh, is that in responses, again, to exclusivity extension, so not, you know, not anything confirmation process related, but uh, the unsecured constituencies, the UCC, uh, a notes group, a claims group, have all voiced support for an exit financing proposal, which they say is uh, premised upon a, quote, materially higher valuation than any other proposal received by the debtors, um, which would come from these, these two uh, ad hoc unsecured groups and uh, certain unspecified new money investors and the UCC has said, oh, yeah, we expect that the debtor's forthcoming plan to be premised upon this proposal. Um, Apollo has said, no, hold, hold on. The valuation materials the debtors were supposed to give us under the final dip order, uh, you know, the, the debtors say they gave them to us. We don't think these are sufficient, uh, which sort of implies, you know, maybe they're, they would like a, a lower valuation at, at which to consider that equity conversion option as, as would we all. Um, so Ed, given that we've kind of, you know, we've got less disclosure on Aeromexico, what do you, you know, what do you think from a evaluation perspective is, is there anything we can glean from uh, looking at information that is available in the market? Yeah. And uh, thanks, Sean. And indeed we sort of have less insight into their, their business plan going forward. Um, as compared to the likes of Avianca and Ladam, um, and into that, and sort of back in back in February, we looked at it and derived a sort of an enterprise value range uh, in, in pesos of uh, 446 to 55 billion pesos, or roughly 2.3 to 2.5 billion dollars, and that was based off of a uh, forecasted 2022 EBITDA of 7.8 to 8.6 billion um, pesos capitalized at six times. Now, underlying those, those EBITDA assumptions at the time um, was the assumption that the, the company would recover to about 75% of 2019 capacity as measured by ASKs um, and generate EBITDA margins um, between sort of 16 and 19% compared to 2020, uh, 2019 margins of uh, 21%. Now, 
since uh, that sort of analysis was, was conducted, the bonds have traded up from sort of mid to high 30s at the beginning of the year to currently around 80s, which is indeed supportive of, of, of a higher valuation. And, and to that end, the, the, the company's um, total capacity recovery, uh, both in terms of domestic and international capacity, is uh, sort of at a combined 75%, with domestic recovery being um, already in, uh, above uh, where it was um, in terms of ASKs in 2019. So if we assume um, additional margin expansion to upwards of 20%, say plus or minus 2%, and near or slightly exceeding uh, 2019 capacity recovery by 2022, um, we'd see EBITDA reaching uh, roughly 12.6 to 14.8 billion uh, Mexican pesos, or 611 to 728 million um, US dollars, which again capitalizes at six times, so that discounted uh, uh, multiplier would translate to an enterprise value of 3.6 billion to 4.36 billion, which is indeed more supportive of, of where those the uh, senior and secured bonds are trading. Um, what we do have, uh, we do have a bit of insight into sort of estimated claims pool and, and pro forma cap structure, which the debtor provided back in May, um, indicating sort of a range, a, a guck pool range of $3.25 billion on the low end and $3.95 billion on the high end, um, which was, uh, I think, slightly higher um, to the tune of $1 billion than what the market expected. Nonetheless, the bonds continue to rally. Um, and, and a pro forma cap stack um, showing as a December 21st, 2021, uh, a net debt figure of $3.84 billion, um, comprised of $2.4 billion in fleet debt, uh, $507 million excuse me, in non-fleet debt, uh, approximately $190 million in sort of miscellaneous other. Uh, and the, uh, the dip, um, uh, $200 million uh, tranche. Uh, one and 921 million of tranche two, um, plus uh, 385 million in cash. Um, notably, uh, there's no, you know, conspicuously, there's no reference to um, the unsecured bonds, assuming or indicating that the, the assumption at the time was that they'd be equitized. And if we take that sort of uh, enterprise value estimate of 4.36 billion. Um, uh, that would translate to a sort of 520 million in equity, assuming that the dip is repaid or taken out in full by um, by the uh, contemplated uh, exit facility that's being touted by the trio of unsecured um, creditor groups. Great, thank you. So, yeah, I guess there there's still a couple open bullets. Um, you know, sort of whether and, and if so, how much of the, the dip claims like to convert to equity or if, or if they're just taken out. Um, curious to see whether and, and well, how much new money is maybe involved from this, you know, the, these new money investors that the, the unsecureds have, have said or in their group, um, sort of some constraints with Mexican foreign investment law that, that could impact where the equity goes to, uh, so hopefully we'll get a we'll get a plan on file soon for this one. Uh, but thank you, thank you very much for running running through it. Thank you, Sean. Well, and Kyle, again, thank you for taking the time to chat through these names. Should be some fun confirmation processes to follow. Uh, until next time. Thank you, Sean, and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, guys. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.